Well, nights like this are exciting because there are so many people here. It's good to see so many of you here. Um, and it just felt like extra busy because everyone was outside playing games. There was football going on tonight. There was pickleball going on tonight. There was some sting pong, ping pong happening. There was Gavin being a ball hog in the gym. Like there was so much cool stuff going on. Tonight. It, was, it was awesome. It was sweet. And it feels like there's so many people and it's really exciting. Um, but I'm going to share with you something that's kind of a scary thing. And I want us to just think about this super seriously because this is a scary statistic that is very commonly quoted, but I want you to hear this, okay? For kids that grow up in church, I don't know if you ever heard this before, but this is very commonly um, widely spread. And I think that the data backs it up that two out of three kids who grow up in church walk away from church when they're older. Two out of three. So that means if you're sitting in here, that means either you, the person to the right, or to the person to the left of you, um, someone's walking away, which is a scary thought. And I want you to reckon with the reality of that because that's the stats. I hope it's not the stats for this group, but I want you to recognize that the stats say only one in three kids that are sitting in your seats, students who go to high school and college, only one out of three stick around. And I think that makes us ask the question, why is that? Right? Why is that? Why do only one out of three students who grow up in youth group, why do they stick around and the two others don't? I think the reason for that is boiled down to one thing. And it's one thing that we're going to study tonight. And it's the answer to the question on the top of your worksheet. A question that Jesus asked a man named Peter. And it's this question. Do you love me? That's the question that Jesus asked Peter. And the reason he asks him this is because he has just done a lot of sin. He is not doing what Jesus wants him to do. And Jesus has to get him back on track. And the answer to this question for Peter is obviously a yes. And if you know anything about Peter's story, you know that he's going to follow Jesus for the rest of his life. But if the answer for you right now to this question is no, if the real answer, the real, if you really search on the inside and you really check your heart, and if the answer to this question is really no, I don't, then there's really no hope that you'll be one of the people that sticks around because what we're going to study tonight, whether or not you love Jesus or not is so important for you and it will change everything about your life. Whether the answer to that question is yes or no. And really all of us, by the end of tonight, I want us to ask that question to ourselves and walk away with an answer. Do I really love Jesus Christ? So let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 21. For the last time we're checking out this book, John chapter 21. And what we're going to see here is the, the end of the story. Now, it's not the end of the story for Peter. It's not even the end of the story for Jesus. It's just the end of this gospel. It's the end of this book that John put together. And really, the last verse of the last chapter says that all the things that were in this book were just a selection of the things that happened to John. So John was one of the people in the story. This person that we read about, the disciple that Jesus loved, one of the sons of Zebedee, he is in this story. So when you read the story, remember, you're reading God's word that is perfect. It's totally perfect, and every word in here is true. But also at the same time, this is like the diary. This is the journal. This is something that happened to somebody. This is John's eyewitness reporting. So if you remember last week, John said that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, then he also appeared to the disciples, and then he appeared to Thomas and the disciples. And that last week was that scene where we looked at Thomas saying, I will never believe that Jesus rose again unless I can physically see him with my own eyes. 
And if I can physically put my hand in his hands and put my hand in the place where he was pierced on the side, I won't believe in Jesus. I won't believe that he is who he said he was unless I can see him and touch him. That's what Thomas said last week. And what we realized was when Jesus showed up to him and appeared before he even touched him, before he even felt the side, he believed. And he said at the very end of that in verse 28, Thomas answered and talked to Jesus. He said, my Lord and my God. And right after that, Jesus made a promise to every one of us who believes without even seeing him yet. Because if you demanded the same thing Thomas demanded, you would never believe. But what Jesus said is there's a blessing for you and I who believe before we even see Jesus face to face. And that's really how we ended last time. So now we're, we're talking still about the disciples. So look what it says in verse one. This is John chapter 21, verse one. After this, so after all that stuff that just took place, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, Sea of Tiberias is the Sea of Galilee. That's up in the north. And again, I think there's an interesting point to make here that John is writing so late that the people are not so much concerned with the Jewish way of calling these things. He's more concerned with the Roman way of calling these things because everyone who read this was in the Roman Empire and they knew who Tiberius was. It says the Sea of Tiberius, Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. So he's about to tell a story here. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So that makes seven people in total. It says they're up at the Sea of Galilee. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. So that sounds weird that they were fishing at night. Could you imagine going fishing at night? That sounds really uh, lonely and sad and maybe scary. I don't know. Um, but they're fishing at night. And that's actually what they used to do. They used to fish at night and they could find the most fish because at night, some of the fish came out in the daytime. Maybe they weren't doing the same patterns at night. It seemed like it was a better time for them to catch fish. But guess what happens? They caught nothing. It doesn't say they caught a little bit of fish. It says they caught zero fish. I just want you to think that's an uncommon thing to fish all night long and catch nothing. That's discouraging. Verse four. Just as day was breaking, you can imagine the sun's coming up. There's some fog on the water here. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, which makes sense. It's early in the morning. Don't know if there's a lot of fog there or anything like that, but they're on the boat. They look on the shore. They see a figure, but they don't know who it is. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Which children, he's not calling them like little kids. He's, it's a nice phrase. Like, hey guys, hey guys, do you have any fish? Does Jesus know if they have any fish? The answer is yes. Well, what do you think they're about to say? And they answered him, no, we don't have any fish. Think about it. Why does Jesus ask them if he knows the answer? They're not really doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not in the place that they should be. They're not really doing the resurrection stuff that they should be doing after Jesus rose again. They're back in their boats. They're back doing what they used to do in their old life. And they catch nothing. Jesus is showing them that they can't do anything. Verse six, he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, if they've been fishing all night, do you think that maybe they, maybe all night they cast their net on two sides of the boat, you think? The answer is yes. Okay, they, they've been fishing all night long. They've been going right and left and they've been going all around the area and they caught nothing. So this random stranger on the shore says, hey, why don't you put your net on the other side? And they just do it. They say, okay, and they do it. 
They don't like to take advice, but there it is. They do it. So they cast their net in, and now they were not able to haul it in. Okay, so they put the net in, and now they can't get the net out. Why? Well, because of the quantity of fish. So after all night of not catching anything, the moment they listen to the person on the shore put their net over the right side of their boat, now they can't even drag the net back up because of how many fish are in it. We find out later there's 153 fish, and they're big fish. Right? Think of 150. That's a lot of fish. Because they're not able to haul it in. It says the disciple, verse 7, whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter. That's the author here. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. So John says to Peter, it is the Lord. Just like John knew it was Jesus and knew that Jesus rose again when he walked in the tomb for the first time. It said he believed. Now it says he's the first one to understand that it's Jesus on the shore. It says, when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. You can imagine all night long, right? Maybe all he's got on are his, his shorts. He doesn't have a big cloak on. It says he grabs his cloak, jumps into the water, which I would think you'd take your cloak off to jump in the water, but he puts his jacket on and then jumps in the water. Okay, that's a little bit weird. Um, but Peter's just all in right here. It says he jumps in the water and he swam all the way to the shore. It says the other disciples came in the boat and they dragged the net full of fish. They couldn't even get it back in the boat. So they're just taking the boat and they're just dragging the net. It says, for they were not far off from land. They're about a hundred yards off, which is another interesting thing. John is in the boat. John was here. John knows exactly how far away they were. He knows exactly how many fish there were. It says, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. It's interesting, verse nine, that word charcoal fire, that word is only used two times in the whole Bible. There's one word, that means charcoal fire. It's used here once, and it's also used, you might even know what it is, a couple chapters earlier in John 18. Where is that charcoal fire? That charcoal fire was in the court, the courtyard of the high priest. What happened there? Well, that was where Peter denied Jesus. So John's already setting this up to know what's going to happen next. Peter, the one who denied Jesus, shows up there. He just jumped in the water he comes, you can imagine him with his big jacket on, right? Really soppy and wet and walking up the shore, right? And saying something to Jesus. It says, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you caught. Simon Peter went aboard. So he's on the shore with Jesus. He goes back onto the boat, hauls the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, which if you've ever caught fish or you've ever been a hunter, you know what hunters and fishermen like to do? They like to tell you exactly how big their fish was, they like to tell you exactly how many they have. And John is no different, okay? I don't think there's anything special with the number 153. I think John's just saying, dude, it was 153 fish. I catch my fish every single time. 153, that's a record, okay? Just like, you know when your dad, okay? This is your dad, right? He has a picture on Facebook with a big fish, okay? You know what I'm talking about? How many of your dads have taken a picture with a big fish that they've caught? Okay, okay, some honest people. Your dads like to do that. I have, see, I know I'm like, I'm barely a dad, um, but I need to like aspire to that, right? One day I'll have a, a, a picture to embarrass my kids with. Where it's, Look how big this fish is. You know, your dad like cares, like it was so big. It was insane. Like John cares too. So about how many fish there were, 153 of them. He's super excited about that. It says, and although there were so many, the net was not torn, which is interesting. We're going to see that I think John is referring back to another miracle that happened earlier in the life of Jesus. It says the net wasn't torn. They dragged it along the side. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They knew it was Jesus. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. So with the fish. 
This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Okay? So this is the third time he shows up to a group of them all together. And what I want you to see here in these first 14 verses is that Peter and these six other disciples were not really doing what they were supposed to be doing. I don't know if they were doing something necessarily sinful, but they were certainly not supposed to go back to their old life of fishing. And we don't know the reason why, so we don't want to be too hard on Peter and the disciples, but probably they shouldn't have been doing that thing that Jesus called them out of. Jesus called them to be fishers of men and evangelists, not fishermen anymore. They were supposed to give up that life, but now we see them going back to it. And Jesus, it's almost like he catches them in the act. And also, in this little story, the 14 verses, we also see that Jesus shows them that they can't do anything without him. They can't even catch the fish. They can do nothing without him, which reminds us of John 15, 5, where he said that he's the vine, that they're the branches, and without me, you can do nothing. It's interesting that John puts these verses together in the way that he does. What this is all going to lead to is Peter having to reaffirm his love and his care for Jesus. I said at the beginning, that's the most important question for any of us to answer. And the first thing that we need to see here is that with Peter and the disciples, they were not really obeying Jesus perfectly. When he shows up, they do. They listen to him in the small things, but also in the big picture, they weren't really obeying him. They were going to, but they weren't right there. And really their obedience with the big things started with their obedience in the small things. The small things like when Jesus said, cast your net on the other side. The small things like, come here, bring the fish. They're doing exactly what Jesus says, and they're not questioning him. They're obeying in the small things, which I think is going to lead them to start to obey in the bigger things. So point number one, I'd love for you to write this down. If we're going to understand our love for God, first of all, we need to obey Jesus in the big and the small things. Obey Jesus in the big and the small things. There are big things that Jesus calls them to. And I think the the thing that he's trying to call them to with this scene is the fact that they are supposed to be fishers of men. And that's not what they're doing. So they're going to get called to that big task, but also in the small tasks. Do you see how they're listening to Jesus? They're doing exactly what he says. It's interesting. That's going to lead to more obedience. I want you to turn your Bibles to the left, to the book of Luke, Luke chapter five. The reason I want you to see this is because I think what John is doing is referencing multiple times a miracle that already happened. And I think this miracle that already happened in the book of Luke that happened to these disciples, what they're remembering is that Jesus is repeating a miracle. He's repeating the whole cast the net on the other side of the boat. And the main purpose of that first miracle was to show that Jesus has called them to a successful ministry of catching fish, but just not fish, fish. God called them to a ministry of catching human fish, so to speak. And Jesus was going to give them the victory in that, but not in the old ways. Luke chapter 5 is the time where it says Jesus called his first disciples. Guess who's there? Peter, James, and John, the same guys that are fishing in John 21. Check this out. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. It says, on one occasion, while the crowds were pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. You know what the lake of Gennesaret is? It's the Sea of Tiberias. It's the Sea of Galilee. It's the same place. And he saw two boats on the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So you can imagine this scene. Jesus is getting pressed towards the coastline. All these people are coming. Jesus sees two boats and the two boats don't have anybody in them because the fishermen are out over there washing their nets in the shoreline. 
It says in verse number three, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's. Simon is later going to be called Peter. And he asked him to put the boat out a little bit from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So this scene is he gets in the boat, goes out, and now he's preaching from Peter's boat. Imagine that. Peter's there, puts the boat out. He's sitting on the corner, maybe listening, maybe not listening. But Jesus preaches this sermon. They don't even know each other very well at this point. It says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep. So go out a little bit further and let down your nets for a catch. What does Simon do? Does he say, yes, sir, absolutely. I'll do exactly what you say. He does not say that. He says, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. You see that? What do they do? They spent all night and they got nothing. Does that sound a little bit like John 21? They spent all night fishing and got nothing. It says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and the nets were breaking. Why does John say the nets aren't breaking? And Luke says the nets are breaking. I think John is keeping, he keeps making parallels to this story in Luke chapter five. He says, where the nets broke then, they're not breaking now. Interesting. Verse number seven, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Who were their partners? James and John, the same people in John 21. And they came and they filled the boats so that they began to sink. Do you notice even something? They learned their lesson, okay? They didn't bring the fish into the boat in John 21. They just dragged them along. In Luke 5, they put them in the boat and the boat started sinking. So I think even at this point, they're understanding exactly what happened. This is the same miracle that's happening. The only difference is in what the disciples are doing differently here. Verse number eight, when Peter, Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's knees and said, please get me more fish. Is that what he said? No, he says the opposite. He says, get away from me, depart from me. I don't wanna see you again because I'm a sinful man, oh Lord. <laughs> even the same word Lord there as we see in John 21. The, the parallel that John is making with us, because we should know Luke 5, the same parallel he's making is Peter's changed. Peter's a different guy. But even in this, he wanted to push Jesus away. In John 21, he jumps out of the boat to see Jesus. It's the opposite reaction. His heart is different. Peter said, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. Verse number nine. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. You're gonna be a fisher of men. What does it say they did in verse 11? And when they had brought their, net, were their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him, okay? John is trying to show in John 21 that their role was to be fishers of men because that's what Jesus taught them with this miracle the first time in Luke chapter five. And I know that that's kind of, it might feel like a stretch. Like, okay, why are we talking about these two miracle stories? Well, because what's the whole point of Luke chapter five? You're supposed to give up your life of being a fisher uh, of fish. Now you're gonna be a fisher of men. Now you're gonna follow me for your whole life. Are you willing to do that? Because here it says they left everything behind. In John 21, what boat did they use? Whose nets did they use? It doesn't say. But it seems like maybe they were trying to go back to that old life. Maybe they went back to their old boats. We don't know. It doesn't say. Maybe they were borrowing someone else's. We don't know. But the point is, they were called to obey God from Luke chapter 5 from the start. He calls them again. You need to obey me again here in John 21. The question that we should have and the question we should ask ourselves, and you need to ask yourself personally, not anybody else but you, is am I willing to obey Jesus in everything? 
Am I willing to give up anything that Jesus says you need to give up? Am I willing to give up friends for Jesus? If that's what it means to obey Jesus rightly, that I might have to give up friends, are you willing to do that? If what it means to follow Jesus and to obey Jesus is to give up certain sins that you know you can't be doing anymore, certain things you shouldn't be watching anymore, certain music you shouldn't be listening to anymore, certain jokes you shouldn't be telling anymore, certain friends and friend groups and parties that you're going to that you know you probably shouldn't be going to anymore, certain things that you wear that you probably shouldn't wear anymore, right? Maybe following Jesus includes giving up those things. And the question is, are you willing to leave them behind? And when things don't go your way, are you going to revert back to those things? Because that's what the disciples seem to be doing, even in a small way here. They're reverting back to their old life of fishing. If you have to give up friends or sins or habits or even goals, is that worth it? Are we willing to do that? In Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, you need to count the cost of following me. And for some of you, some of you are not Christians yet, and you know you're not Christians, and for some of you, that may be a helpful thing because you recognize and understand the weight of following Jesus with your whole life. But the thing that you need to do today is not say, great, I like not following Jesus. The, the thing you need to do today is count the cost. What is it gonna take for me to give up everything and follow Christ? And then I need to seriously reckon with that because anything that you could count the cost of, it would be worth it to follow Christ tonight. There's nothing that you could count in the cost of following Christ that would not be worth tonight giving everything up to serve Christ for the first time. Nothing would make it not worth it. Nothing. The big thing for them was being fishers of men instead of fishers of fish. Jesus catches them going back to their old life. The small things that they started obedience in was throwing their net on the other side without asking questions. Instead of Simon Peter saying, we didn't catch anything all night. In John 21, they just do it. And they recognize that it's Jesus. We need to obey God in the big things like the big areas of our life, but also the small things. Also the way that we talk. And those things that I mentioned before, maybe it's things that we need to give up. The friends, the media, whatever it is that we might need to give up to follow Jesus more closely and obey him rightly. Next, it says that Jesus is going to turn his attention to one of these disciples. Go back to John 21. I want you to see this. John 21, verse 15. I said that question of, do you love me, is going to be important. And it's the center of the whole chapter. And it's also the center of this conversation that Jesus is about to have with Peter. Check this out. Everybody, John 21, verse 15. Everybody check this out. John 21, 15. It says, when they finished eating breakfast, so they just had their food, Jesus said to Simon Peter, okay, what does Jesus call Simon Peter? What's his name? It's Peter, right? It's Peter. That's the name his mom called him, right? No, that wasn't the name his mom called him. That was his name that Jesus called him. Jesus said, you're Peter. And the word Peter means rock. It means solid. It means immovable force. Whenever Peter's in trouble, Jesus has a name for him. You know what name he calls him? Simon. Why do you call him Simon? Because that's his old name. That's his old life. That's the old Peter. Okay. You know what Jesus even does in calling him Simon? I think two things. He's saying, hey, you're acting like the old Simon. You know, we just caught you fishing. You know, Simon was a fisher. Peter was going to be a fisher of men. You're acting like a Simon, not like a Peter. The other thing is, that's the first thing that Jesus called Peter. That's what he called him when he got saved. He called him out of his sin when he called him Simon. Even in other parts of the Gospels, in John, or Matthew 16, I think of, when Peter is opposing Jesus going to the cross, what does Jesus call him? He calls him Simon, Simon. 
Your, your minds are set on earthly things. Like you're thinking about the wrong thing. He calls him Simon, son of John. Here's the question. Do you love me more than these? We don't know what the these are. The these could be a couple of things. It could either mean, hey, hey, Peter, do you love me more than your fishing job? Do you love me more than that? It could also mean, the other thing it might mean is, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Are you the one that loves me most? You might say, why would Jesus ask that question? Well, because Peter multiple times said, I would stick with you even if everyone denies you. I won't deny you. Who's the only disciple to deny Jesus to everyone's face? Who's the only one to do it blatantly? Peter. He said, I'm going to be the best. Guess what he ended up being? The worst. So I think what Jesus might be asking Peter is, do you love me more than these other disciples? And even if that's not what he meant, he's at least saying, do you love me more than the fishing equipment? Are you going to follow me? Do you really love me? Which that's not like a a question that that says like, do, do you want to serve me? Do you believe that I'm the Lord? That's not the question. The question is, do you love Jesus? Do you love him, the person? And for Peter, his response is a good one. It's the only one he can really say. He said, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He doesn't even say, yes, I love you. And here's all the reasons why. Here's all the things that I just did to prove my love. Because guess what? Peter did not prove his love for Jesus, did he? If anything, he acted like he didn't love Jesus with his actions. What Peter has to do is literally appeal to Jesus knowing all things. It takes someone who knows all things to know that Peter loved Jesus. Jesus responded to him, feed my lambs. What does that mean? In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd and my flock is all the people that God has given me. It's the people. Feed them, shepherd them. It's two images really. You're going to be a fisher of men, and you're also going to be a shepherd. The word shepherd is the word that we get in English, the word pastor. It says you're going to be a pastor now. You're going to serve God's people now. You're going to lead the church now. It says, I want you to lead my people. That's Jesus' specific commission to Peter right here. Verse 16, Jesus asked him a second time, which seems awkward. Why does Jesus have to ask him twice? It says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now he doesn't just say, do you love me more than everything else? Now he says, do you even love me? Do you love me? If Jesus asked you this question once, it'd be kind of an awkward question, but you'd respond. If he asked you twice, after you responded rightly, how would you feel at this point? Probably pretty bad. Probably like Jesus is trying to get you to change your mind here or something. He doesn't change his mind. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Same response. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep, take care of my flock, take care of the people that God has given me. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, not once, not twice, but a third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now it says Peter was grieved. It hurt his heart. Think about it. It really hurt him. It hurt his feelings that Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Hurt his feelings. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know everything. Not just that I love you. You know everything. And because you know everything, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Why does he do it three times? Why does he do this in front of a charcoal fire? What did Peter do three times? 
He denied Jesus three times publicly to different groups of people. When Peter was asked, do you know him? Peter said, I don't know him. Do you know him? No, I don't know him. I don't, I don't love him. I'm not associated with him. Do you, do you know him? No, I don't know him at all. That's what happened with Peter. Now Jesus runs the tape back three different times, says, do you love me? And he says, yeah, you know I do. Do you love me? Yeah, you know I do. Do you love me? Yeah, you know everything. You know that I do. And it hurt his feelings. What's happening right here? I want you to think about it. What's happening to Peter right here? Peter's just fallen into a bunch of sin when he denied Jesus. Now he's not doing the thing that he should do. He doesn't have the purpose. He doesn't have the mission. But like even last week, we want to make Jesus' mission our mission. He wasn't living on mission right here. He wasn't doing what Jesus wanted. Jesus has to restore him and ask him three times. Just like he denied him three times, he's restoring him. This is not a punishment. This is actually a way of Jesus reaffirming his love and care for him. The question for us, do we love Jesus? The point I want you to write down, point number two, the thing we need to do is we need to love Jesus and serve his people because that's really what Jesus calls him to. After he sinned, because when it feels like we can't serve Jesus is usually after we've sinned, after we've done what's wrong. We feel like, well, I can't claim to love and serve you now because I haven't acted like it. But Peter, on the inside, he really did care for Jesus, even though he sinned. And that's why if Jesus were to ask you that question, you might have the feeling, yeah, I, I love you, but like I've also done things that are wrong. Does that negate completely? Does that remove completely someone's love for Jesus? The answer is no, it doesn't. It doesn't ultimately remove a person's love for Jesus. But on the other hand, some people in this room, maybe you think, well, of course I love Jesus. Think about all the things I've done for Jesus. That's not his question. That's not what he's asking. If Jesus were to ask you, do you love me? Your response can't be, yeah, I went to Iwana. I went to TNN every week. Of course I love you, right? That's a bad answer. A lot of people come to TNN. A lot of people go to Iwana and don't love Jesus. That's not the right answer. The answer is basically, do you or do you not actually care deeply in your inside, in your soul? Do you actually care about Christ? Do you care at all? Do you care the most? Because that's really what Jesus asked Peter. Do you love me more than everything? The answer is yes for him. But the reality is, if you do really care about Jesus more than anything else, it will be shown by the way that you live. It just, it has to. It will come out in your lifestyle. Jesus put it like this in John chapter 14, 15. John 14, 15. It says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love Christ, you will keep my commandments. Which is why some of you might say, well, I, I care about Jesus. But like, if you looked at my life, do it, does it look like he, I care? Well, not really. Well, that should be a cause of concern for you. That really should be. Because if you love Jesus, you are going to keep his commandments. Further, if you don't love Jesus at all, and maybe that's where you stand right now. You don't know Jesus that well. You've heard about him. You believe in some sense that he's God or whatever. But like, if I was to ask you on the inside, like you love the person you love most. Is he the person you love most? Like really the most? If you lost everybody else and you only had him, would you be like, that's fine? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, if anyone does not have love for the Lord, if you don't have love for the Lord, if, if someone doesn't love Jesus Christ, let him be accursed, cut off from God forever. Why, why so serious? Like, why so strong? 
Because that's, this is the beginning of, of Christianity. This is the beginning of really understanding a relationship with God is do you love him or do you not? Peter does even though he sinned. And that's the, the, the problem that many of you might be in because if I was to ask you or if Jesus was to really come and ask you, you might have trouble answering that question because you know your sin. Maybe you even know you're unrepented of sin, a sin you haven't turned from. Peter repents of his sin right here. Peter's not gonna deny Jesus anymore after this point. It says that Peter grieves, but in a good way. I want you to write down this passage. We're not gonna turn there, but 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 to 11. You're gonna turn there in small groups. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 to 11, it says, Paul was talking to a group of Christians. He says, if I made you grieve with my last letter, I don't regret it. I'm not sad that I made you sad. That sounds mean. Though I did regret it, though I was sad about it for a while, for I see that the letter made you sad, that it grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice. I'm happy that I made you sad. What? Why? Because you were grieved, but you were also because you were grieved into repenting. The, the hurt feelings that you had led to you following God. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through our, through our letter. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas a worldly grief produces death, which is why I can preach the sermon and maybe you feel bad, but feeling bad doesn't mean that you love Jesus. It just doesn't mean that. It can mean that, but it doesn't necessarily in itself mean that you really love him because this says there's a way that you could feel bad about hurting his feelings. There's a way that you could feel bad about dishonoring him. But if you feel bad and it doesn't lead to anything, then that feeling bad is just a worldly grief or godly grief that produces a change, it says, produces earnestness and eagerness and indignation and fear and longing and zeal and punishment. It says that at every point you've proved yourself innocent in the matter. That's what it looks like to really repent. That's what Peter does. He is going to be so bold after this. Like, do you, do you realize what Peter does in the book of Acts? Instead of cowering away from the high priest and the, the servants of the high priest, he's gonna go straight for them. And he's gonna tell the high priest to his face that he killed Jesus and that Jesus is God. He, he's gonna go straight at it. What he does is he proves himself innocent in the matter. He says, I'm never gonna deny Jesus again. That's what real repentance looks like. The difference is he loves Jesus and that causes the change. If you don't repent of your sin and if you don't turn away from sin and you still live in it and you still do it and you still keep doing the same old things, what that proves about your heart is that you can't answer that question, do you love Jesus, with the answer yes. You just can't. The answer is no. Because that love for Jesus is ultimately, it has to lead you to serving him. And specifically, Jesus says, feed my sheep. The thing that he wants Peter to do is be a pastor. Because I want you to pastor the flock. I want you to take care of the people in the church. Take care for them. Feed them. Tend them. Be there for them. It's interesting that Peter is the one who later writes one of the most famous verses of all time about being a caring pastor. Because he was taught by Jesus himself. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 1. He says, I exhort the elders, the pastors among you, as a fellow elder and pastor and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, which you didn't witness, but he, Peter did, 
as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. What did Jesus tell Peter to do? Shepherd the flock of God. What does Jesus tell pastors today and at all time to do? Shepherd the flock of God, take care of the flock. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, when Jesus really comes, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. That was Peter's thing that he was called to. That's what your pastors are called to, pastoring the flock. But what are you called to? I know you're called to serving God's people. That's what Jesus does immediately. He says, if you love me, what you're gonna do is turn your attention outward and start focusing on the people around you and caring for them and serving them. He knows it's gonna happen. Peter does it. Peter proves it. It's possible for him to repent. It's also possible for you to repent. And tonight you could love Jesus for the first time and choose to love him because that's what love is. Love is not just an emotional response to something. It's a choice that you make. I'm going to love that person. You could choose tonight. I am going to choose tonight. I will love Jesus. I will serve him. I will obey him. I will honor him. And I will take care of his people. That's the hard part. Your focus in life really needs to be on following Christ and doing what he says and That's what we get around to. Look at verse 18, back in our passage, John 21. This is the end of the story. What Jesus tells Peter, says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to a place you don't want to go. That kind of just sounds like a verse about getting old, okay? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you ever had a grandparent who like, you know, they have to do like a bath with their, you know, Sponge, you know, sponge, you know what I'm talking about? That sounds like, is this just an old, like you're just going to be old one day, right? I don't think that's what he's saying because of what John says next. He says, this he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. So it wasn't just Jesus saying, hey, Peter, you're going to get old one day, so old you can't even put on clothes yourself. That's not his point. He's saying one day there's going to be someone who's going to dress you and he's going to lead you to a place that you don't want to go. And what John said here is Jesus said this to tell him in advance what kind of death he was going to die, that his hands were going to be stretched out. What kind of death mechanism could there be where someone has to have their hands stretched out on both sides? Well, that's what happens to Peter, is that Peter is crucified for Jesus. Sounds like I said it wrong. No, Jesus is, or Peter is crucified for Jesus. Peter was crucified for Jesus. Jesus was crucified for Peter. It's an ironic thing that happens in the end. His hands are stretched out. He said, after this, after saying what kind of death he was going to die, which imagine if Jesus told you how you were going to die for him, right? That sounds intense. After he said that, here's what he said. Follow me. Follow me. Simple words. Two words. Follow me. It's the same two words that Jesus said at the beginning of the gospel in John 1, 43, when he told Philip, hey, follow me. It's the same command from beginning to end. Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John was following them. See the word following? Why does John say he was following them? After Jesus just said, follow me. And it says John was already following them. John and Peter have this rivalry. That's what I think. They have this thing. John, Peter's dead at this point. So John can write whatever he wants. You know, uh, you know when your friend's not in the room, like when we're giving announcements and, you know, never mind. Point is, um, John likes to insert himself into the story a little bit. 
He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Like, he doesn't name himself, but he gives himself better than his name. He's like, I'm the one that Jesus liked most. So I'm, his fa- I'm Jesus' favorite. So, um, you know, the disciple, you know, Jesus' favorite disciple. Yeah, that, that's me. Uh, that's, that's what John's saying. After Jesus commanded Peter to follow him, John is already doing the thing that Jesus commanded Peter to do. <laughs> I think it's ironic. He's following them from his side. And he says, oh, remember who I was? I'm the one who leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it to betray you? It's like, we get it, John. We, we know who you are. Um, thanks for telling us again. Verse 21, Peter saw him and said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about him? You said, I'm going to die like this. What about him? What about John? He did not call him the disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't call him Jesus' favorite. Uh, he said, what about him? Jesus said, if it is my will that he is to remain, that he doesn't die, until I come, what is it to you? Which is interesting. What is that to you? It says, you follow me. It says, don't be concerned about John, okay? Don't worry about John. Verse 22 says, or verse 23 says, so the saying spread around the brothers that this disciple was not to die. And John's writing this to say, uh, spoiler alert, yeah, he did not say that I wasn't gonna die. Yeah, Jesus did not say to him, he was not to die, but if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Not the little, talking to himself in the third person, his testimony, he's talking about himself. We know that his testimony is true. I know that it's true because I'm the one who wrote it because I saw these things. Verse 25, he says, now there are a ton of other things that Jesus did. Tons of things. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written. Jesus has done so much. And even to this day, think about all the things that Jesus has done. You might say, well, if you cataloged everything that he did on earth, well, think about all the things that he's done and all the people throughout all of history that have trusted in him. You couldn't even fill all the books in the world with all the things that Jesus has done. Peter was awkwardly too concerned about John here. Um, he was concerned about what would happen to John. What Jesus corrects him is saying, you need to follow me. You need not worry about John. You need to follow me. And what you're going to do is you're going to follow me for the rest of your life. You're going to even die for me. I hope that's true for you. I hope you're going to be a person who follows Jesus till the day that you die. In the beginning, I said two out of three people don't that sit in chairs like this. Two out of three. If there's 100 students tonight, stats would say only 30 of you will be walking. Only 30 of you will be in church in eight years. If you're going to be a person who follows Jesus for the rest of your life, you need to love him. That needs to be the thing. That's where it all starts. Point number three, I'd love for you to write this down. Follow Jesus for the rest of your life. Follow him. Jesus said in John 10, this is my sheep, hear my voice, and they follow me. If you're one of God's people, guess what you're going to do? You're going to follow him. Peter encourages people later on in his life in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, don't be surprised if you face intense persecution. Don't be surprised. Don't think something strange is happening to you, but you need to rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says, if you are insulted, right? Because Peter was killed, right? Which is why I don't know what's going to happen to you. But what I do know is if you live for Christ, you probably will be insulted for him. What Peter says is if you're insulted for Christ, 
If people make fun of you because you follow Jesus, it says you're blessed because the spirit of glory rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler, which is why suffering for Christ doesn't involve you um, getting in trouble at school, okay? It means you're the one who doesn't get in trouble. You're not suffering because you did what was wrong. It says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I love how Peter says that because what he's so concerned about in his death is, will I glorify God? Because I didn't glorify him when I denied Jesus. Am I going to glorify him? What Jesus actually promises here is that Peter will be successful, that he will stay the course, that he'll make it. The obedience and the following. The problem is if we take that away from the love of Christ, we're not going to be successful. We're not going to really follow him. You're going to give up. You're going to walk away if you don't really love Jesus first. There's not many things that we tell 7th and 8th grade students, you should do this and, and do it now and it will affect the rest of your life, okay? Have you noticed that? Most people are not telling you to make decisions that will affect the rest of your life. If anything, the world kind of says you should try everything, you know, you don't know where you're going to college yet, right? You haven't picked that out. You haven't picked out your major. You haven't picked out your career. You haven't picked out your spouse, right? There's just not many things that, like, you've been told you need to do for the rest of your life, which is I know what makes this scary, Okay? Because if you really understand the magnitude of what Jesus calls you to do, this is a little bit scary, isn't it? Because for Peter, Jesus said, you're going to give up some freedom. You're not going to do everything you want to do anymore. You're going to be doing what I want you to do. You're going to be that fisher of men. You're going to be that shepherd. Might not be the thing that you wanted, but it's going to be so good. There's not many things we call you to do. Um, I want you to imagine if I called you to get married. And not like when you're older, but like in three weeks. Okay, just this is imagination, okay? Parents watching at home, this is an imagination. This is an illustration. This is not meant to be taken literally. Okay, as long as, as, long as that warning's out there. Imagine if I said, you've got three weeks, go. Right, you'd be like freaking out, wouldn't you? You'd be like, okay, okay. Uh, does anyone want, yeah, you'd be, <laughs> you'd start taking volunteers, right? You'd put out a list. It'd be like a Valentine's list, right, you know? It's like, I'm going to, yeah, I don't know. Actually, I don't know what you'd do. Probably not good things, right? Um, you probably would not plan very well. But if you had three weeks and that was it, that would be a pretty big decision, wouldn't it? Right? To make in three weeks. What if I said, no, you got to choose tonight. And they have to say yes tonight. You'd be like, okay, all right. I can't, I can't do that. Because these guys, they're just, we don't know what they're going to turn out like, you know? We just don't know right? Some of them got some promise. Others of them, I don't know. Some of them. <laughs> That'd be a pretty big decision, right? Because you know why? Because if you got the right view of, okay, what it means to be married, it means we're going to do this for the rest of our life. This is a decision I would have to make tonight, really? Tonight? For the rest of my life? You say, that's too big of a decision for me, right? See, that's kind of what you're being asked to do, which is why you need to count the cost. You're being asked to commit yourself to someone for the rest of your life and to love Christ for the rest of your life. That's what you're committing to when you become a Christian, which is maybe for some of you why it's been scary and maybe you haven't really trusted in Christ and asked him for salvation because you're concerned about that whole lifelong thing. The problem is if you were to get 
married tonight, I would almost guarantee you'd probably not choose that wisely, okay? Sorry, but it just probably wouldn't, not that it wouldn't work out, it would just be weird, right? Probably wouldn't be that great. Why? Well, yeah, not great, yeah. Um, because, uh, yeah, look at them, right? I mean, we just don't know, right? We don't know what they're going to turn out like, ladies, right? They, they, these guys, you know, you never know. You might pick a good one. You might pick a bad one. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a gamble. It's kind of up in the air. That's the problem with that choice. So now we can remove the imagination. We're not picking people to marry tonight, okay? We remove that imagination. It's not happening, okay? But here's the deal. The problem is you might pick, wise, you might pick foolishly. You might pick a, a bad guy. You are a bad girl. So I don't know why I just started talking to the girls. Guys were just like not paying attention. So I was like, we'll just talk to you guys. Um, it would not be a good thing because you'd marry a sinner. You'd marry someone who might fail you. You might marry someone who'd be unfaithful. You don't know, right? That's the risk. The thing about following Christ is he will never fail you. He will never be unfaithful. And he's proved beyond the shadow of a doubt his infinite love and care for you. When he did what he did in John chapter 19, when he gave his life in your place. And anyone who decides, okay, I need to follow Jesus. And that, if that means the rest of my life, okay, that, the rest of my life. If you do follow Christ and even think about that tonight, he won't fail you. He won't let you down. It will always work out for your benefit. And what we mean by that is it will always be good for a person to choose to follow Christ. Even if it's hard, it will still be the right thing. It will still be good. It'll be so much better than the alternative. There's no risk involved. The only risk involved is you're giving up your life in exchange for his. You're now going to follow him instead. I want you to consider that. I want you to realize that you can make that decision now, that if you're convicted over your sin and you know that you're guilty and you know that you need to repent, that's something that God calls you to do tonight. I want you to maybe talk about your, talk about your place before God in small groups tonight. We've got a couple questions that are going to talk about that, about whether or not you love Christ. And being the last sermon from this gospel, I want you to really, really consider that. Do I love Christ most? Please consider that, because that's going to be the thing that changes everything for your life. So let's pray about that right now.